Bible reading I've been asked to do is from uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 7, and it's on page 968 of the Church Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second passage is from Mark chapter 10 and verses 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thanks very much, Francis and Jane, and great to have you in membership. Good morning, everybody. Let's uh, pray as we come to, to God's word. Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your law. We pray you'd give us understanding so that we may keep your law and obey it with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, try to imagine yourself in the position of Bartimaeus, the blind man we've just read about. Maybe you've been blind from birth. You've never seen the beauty of God's creation the trees, the the flowers, the lakes, the mountains, the birds, the animals. You've never seen the temple in all its glory. You've never seen the faces of the people you love. You can't earn a living, and so each day you sit by the side of the road begging for a little money just to survive. Because you can't see, your other senses are stronger. You can smell the animals, the, the people around you. You can hear all the conversations going on. You've heard about this man, Jesus, who is going around teaching people about the kingdom of God, healing people of their illnesses, their disabilities. You know that he's been in Jericho, and now you hear that he's coming your way. You hear the noise and the distance getting louder and louder as he approaches till you realize that he's, he's close by. And so you choose your moment And you shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Or the people around you tell you to shut up. 
You're just a blind beggar. Why would he be interested in you? Undeterred, you shout even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then people stop moving. And they're saying to you, hey, cheer up. Get on your feet, he's calling you. You jump to your feet and the crowd guides you in your darkness towards Jesus till you sense that he's in front of you. And you hear these amazing words. What do you want me to do for you? And quite simply you reply, teacher, I want to see. Go, he says, your faith has healed you. And at that moment the light floods in and as you finish rubbing your eyes, the first thing you see is the face of Jesus smiling at you. You're staring into the face of God. He has shown you mercy. We're in the middle of a series in the Beatitudes, and one of the things we commented on last week was there was a progression in the Beatitudes from emptiness to fullness. They start with a blessing for those who acknowledge that they are spiritually poor. We are all sinners who have nothing to offer God. We come with empty hands. And we are promised the kingdom. Not only do we admit our sin, we, we mourn it. Uh, it grieves us. And so even after we're saved, we still want to be rid of the sin that, um, that still remains. And the good news is we will be comforted. We will have the guilt for our sin taken away, the penalty taken away and dealt with. Those who are aware of their sin treat others differently. They don't look down on them. They're not defensive when they're sinned against, but instead they respond with meekness. They don't fret, but they trust that God is in control. And instead, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want to, to do good to others, and as they do so, they are filled. Because fullness comes when we do that for which we are created, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, mercy is the next step in this progression. Not only do we not respond to evil with evil, not only do we seek to do good to others, but we also do good to those who don't deserve it. If we're Christians here this morning, it's because God has showed us mercy. He has forgiven us our sins, even though we didn't deserve it. Which is our first point, that Jesus shows mercy to those who don't know, who know that they don't deserve it. Everyone seeks some sort of satisfaction and meaning in life. Um, They may look for it in different places. There are those who uh, try and find it themselves in the things of this world and in physical or material satisfaction. Whether it's in success or relationships or just uh, having fun. The trouble is that often leads to frustration. The words of Mick Jagger, I just can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try and I try. Last week I quoted from C.S. Lewis. Remember this quote? He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so there are others who seek spiritual satisfaction. And there are two ways of achieving uh, spiritual satisfaction. First, you are those who try and earn it, to make themselves deserving of it, which is 
pretty much every religion in the world apart from Christianity. And sadly, that way leads either to, to pride or despair. Secondly, there are those who realize that no matter how hard they try, they will never be able to achieve God's standard of perfection. And therefore, instead, they call out to God to show them mercy. Well, when Jesus came to earth, he made it pretty clear what he thought of those who tried to do things in their own strength, who thought a lot of themselves. One incident, um, when Matthew had given up his tax collecting to follow Jesus, invited all his old friends, all his tax collector friends around um, to his house to meet him. And tax collectors were considered the, the scum of the earth by the Jewish leaders, were mentioned in the same breath as sinners. Why? Because they'd effectively rejected the Christian faith. They, they'd sided with the Romans, and so they were religious outcasts. It's not surprising, therefore, that the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Is he condoning their behavior? But Jesus' reply really strikes home, doesn't it? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what does does he mean by that? Well, he's saying, I'm not interested in your sacrifices if you think that that is what makes you right with God. If you think that you're somehow better than everyone else because of your outward behavior, then you're wrong. You need my mercy just as much as anyone else. Jesus showed his mercy, his loving kindness to those who accepted they needed it. The story of blind Bartimaeus is a powerful one, isn't it? Not only did he know that he was physically needy, after all, he depended on people's handouts just to, to survive, he also knew he was spiritually needy. And the only person who could help him was the Son of God. Yes, he wanted to see physically, um, but he also wanted to see spiritually. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see God. And just as Jesus could hear Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road through all the crowds of people, all the noise going on, he can hear us if we cry out to him. Jesus, have mercy on me. That's all it takes to become a Christian. Having been given his sight, Bartimaeus immediately follows Jesus. Having had our eyes open to see Jesus, what do we do? We follow him, don't we? One of the ways in which we are changed, as our whole lives are changed as we follow Jesus, is that we are merciful to others. So those who are shown mercy are merciful to others. Now, although the Beatitude is phrased the other way around, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is not a, an entry requirement into the kingdom. After all, you can't earn mercy. By its very nature, it is a free gift. But it's a badge of membership. Those who have received mercy themselves want to show mercy to others. So what does that mercy look like? Well, there are two main ways in which we show mercy to others. The first one is to forgive people when they sin against us. In the next chapter in Matthew's Gospel, we read how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In the middle of what is known as the Lord's Prayer, um, other words, 
that go like this. Forgive us our debts or our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors or those who sin against us. And there's a powerful parable that goes um, with that, you'll be familiar with, um, which Jesus used to teach people how important this is. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant, which if you've got your Bibles handy, let's go to Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. As with most of his parables, Jesus tells it in response to a question. And this time the question is from Peter, who asks, How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now Peter's assuming there must be some sort of reasonable limit to forgiving someone if they keep offending you. He thinks he's being quite generous by suggesting seven times. But Jesus puts him in his place when he says, I tell you not, not seven times, but 77 times. By which he doesn't mean when he gets to the 78th time that you no longer need to forgive him. He's effectively saying, if you're counting the number of times you have forgiven someone, you haven't truly understood forgiveness. There's no limit to how many times we should forgive someone because there's no limit to how many times God forgives us. Now, on the one hand, that's, that's great. Um, that there's no limit to the number of times God is willing to forgive us because we know we keep failing. But on the other hand, that makes it pretty hard for us when we sometimes find it hard to forgive someone, even just the once. When the parable Jesus um, compares the kingdom of heaven with a king who's owed 10,000 bags of gold by a servant. Today's terms, you're looking at millions of pounds. And in verse 25, if you flick over the page, it says, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now Jesus is using this image to describe the debt that we owe God. Our debt is the accumulation of all the things that we have done that have gone against God's perfect instructions. All the selfish thoughts, and deeds, or the things we haven't done, which we should have done, or the times we've lived without regard for God, without any gratitude for what he's given us or done for us. And the point of the story is that even selling his wife, his children, all that he had, the man would never have been able to repay God. And it's the same with God. There's nothing we could ever do to repay the debt that we have with God. But here comes the good news. Because when the servant begs for mercy, we are told in verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. It's like the king destroys the, the record. The debt's gone. And it's the same with God when he forgives our debt. Forgiveness is when you admit your guilt, you ask for forgiveness, and your debt is cancelled. Showing mercy is forgiving someone who, who doesn't deserve it. Um, and that's why there's no limit to forgiveness, because the person, person doesn't deserve to be forgiven in the first place. God never says, okay, that's enough forgiveness for you. You've run out of chances. There's no limit to his mercy. I think sometimes we think of forgiveness as um, uh, an emotional thing. 
you know, forgive, you forgive when you're in that right place, when your emotions are settled enough to, to be able to. Now, clearly, depending on the offense, it can cause a huge emotional burden. There can be great anger at the crime or the, the injustice that has been committed. But the Bible doesn't give that as a reason for not forgiving. Jesus suffered more pain than anyone. The creator of the universe hung on a cross. The most painful way of dying you can think of, having lived a perfect life, having done no wrong. And yet, he was still able to look at those who are guilty of this crime and pray to his father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. Both the king and the servant who had been forgiven had a choice. The king chose to forgive. What about the servant? What does he do? Well, having been forgiven a debt of millions, he goes after the person who owes him ten quid, and it says he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The fellow servant does exactly what he did with his master. Verse 29, it says, he fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But how does the servant respond to this plea for forgiveness? Somebody pleading with him for mercy. Verse 30, it says, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. He made a choice. He refused to forgive. And how often have we found ourselves in that situation? I don't want to downplay any offense that may have been committed against you. Some of you may have experienced terrible injustice. And God knows that. And justice will one day be done. But don't forget just how much is the debt you have towards God, which he's wiped out through his mercy because Jesus was prepared to take the punishment for you. We can show mercy through forgiving those who sin against us. And secondly, we can show mercy by caring for people in all of their needs. Whilst our greatest need is spiritual, we've been made as human beings with physical bodies, with um, emotions, and God cares for all of our needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual, which is why Jesus came to earth and took on human form, why he showed compassion for, for all of our needs. And as those who have received his mercy, we're called to show that same mercy to others in need, whatever that need may be. One of Jesus' most well-known parables uh, is that of the Good Samaritan. Um, it's about a man who is beaten up by, by robbers and left half dead by the side of the road. A priest and a Levite, both those who knew God's law, one after the other, they walk down that same road. They see the man, they cross over the road and walk on by and it was a Samaritan, a so-called enemy of the, of the Jews who, who saw the man but took pity on him, who took care of him, who sacrificed for him, even though it wasn't expected of him. And after telling the parable, Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Mercy in that story is pity 
It's compassion for someone in need, and it's the willingness to do something about it. In 1 John 3, we read, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's easy, isn't it, to feel compassion and not feel able to help because of a whole host of reasons. Um, and ultimately it comes down to a decision, doesn't it? What is more important, this person's needs or my needs? My safety, my, my comfort, my financial security, my, my meeting I've got to get to. I don't want us to beat ourselves up over all the, the missed chances we've had to show compassion. It's not a bad thing to, to feel guilty in some ways. If we miss an opportunity to show God's love to someone, it's better to feel guilty than not to feel anything at all. But let's take that guilt and let's use it to grow in our act of compassion. Let's think on how Jesus would have behaved in that situation. Let's pray for a greater compassion, a greater um, willingness to, to do something about it. Well, let's move on to the next beatitude, which again is linked to the first uh, one we've looked at. Because those who have shown mercy seek to be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now this week in the holiday club, I'm sure there will be a, a few masks around because... Um, some of those superheroes try to hide their real identity. But the word heart is a key word in the Bible um, because it describes people as they really are. It's the inner person. Without all the pretense, without all the masks that we try and put on to make ourselves appear better than we really are, now the heart describes our inner thoughts and feelings, our real inner self. And the reason God has no time for appearances is that he can see exactly what is in the heart of each one of us. You might recall the story in the Old Testament of Samuel choosing one of the sons of Jesse to be king of Israel. And uh, as all the sons were lined up, he thought, it must be this guy here, Eliab. Um, But God said to him, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus came not simply to change our behavior, but our hearts. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about through Matthew 5 and 6. He takes an Old Testament commandment. If you've got the page open, you see there on the opposite page, um, like, you shall not murder. And he says, well, actually, the problem is the anger in our hearts. He takes the commandment, like, do not commit adultery. And he says, the problem is lust in our hearts. And the people Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for were religious hypocrites. Again, because he knew what was really on their hearts when they were trying to impress other people. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. As people, we're so focused on the outward appearance because we're worried about what people think of us. 
just imagine if everybody knew the thoughts of your heart. If they were pure, we wouldn't have nothing to worry about or be ashamed about, would we? But we know they're not. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure, though, in heart? What does it mean to be pure? It means to be not mixed with anything else. Water is pure. Salt is, is pure. Gold is pure. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Start of the conversation about what God expects from us, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. That is to be pure in heart. To worship God as number one in your life. To give him your exclusive allegiance. To be impure is to worship someone or something else as well as God. And the trouble is there are always other things contending for that number one place in our hearts, aren't there? Things that make us impure. And rather than dealing with those issues, uh, so often we take comfort in the fact that, well, our outward behavior is acceptable. People think we're a nice guy. People respect us. And instead we ignore the state of our hearts. The book we were using in the... Uh, parenting course uh, last year was this one by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. And in it um, he mentions that passage I quoted where where Jesus denounces the Pharisees as washing the outside of the cup um, while the inside is still dirty. And he says this, he says, yeah this is what we often do in child rearing. We demand changed behavior and never address the heart that drives the behavior. Paul Tripp wrote this book, Age of Opportunity, looking at the issues to do with parenting teenagers. Um, For teenagers, the biggest challenge to the pure heart is peer pressure, the need to be accepted. And it's easy to think of peer pressure as something that just affects teenagers, but in actual fact, it never leaves us, does it? Um, We're still 20, 30, 40 years later trying to impress our peers. The ways in which we impress them may have changed. Maybe it's now through our children or even our grandchildren and their achievements. The question is, do we want to deal with these heart issues? Or are we happy just to take comfort in our acceptable outward behavior? That's what the Celebrate Recovery course is about that we're going to be launching very, very soon. It's saying that there's stuff in my heart that needs dealing with. And rather than just pretending I'm okay... I'm prepared to make myself vulnerable because I want to be pure in heart. I want to see Jesus. Or just as our salvation is down to God's mercy, so is that process of purification or sanctification of becoming like Jesus. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God. I can't create in that myself. Lord, create in me a pure heart. Jesus was pure. The perfect, unblemished lamb who was sacrificed for us, who bore all our sin. So that as we call out to him for mercy, we are cleansed from sin. And we're considered pure in God's sight. And the promise for those who are pure in heart is they will see God. And isn't that the greatest thing to look forward to? Seeing God 
the question I want to leave you with as we, we finish this morning, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, is do you want to see God? Do you want to see the beauty of his, his perfect holiness, his purity, his love? If you do, all you need to do is to ask him to show you mercy. Mercy for rejecting him, for living a life where you've not given him the honor he deserves. Can I urge you to do that? If you are already a believer, how much does that promise of seeing God fill you with excitement? To see God is to be admitted into his presence, to be in awe of his full glory. In this life, for now, we are told we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, when he comes again, we shall see face to face. How much are you preparing for that day? How much are you seeking to be merciful to others, to, to grow in purity? Let's finish with some verses from Revelation 22 that describe that wonderful day that we are heading towards. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's just have a moment to reflect on what we've heard and reflect on God's mercy, the way he showed that to us in Jesus Christ. That massive debt that's been forgiven has been wiped out. Maybe think of how we show mercy to others. How we're finding that hard. Ask God for help in that whole area. Ask God to make you pure in your love for him. Moment of quiet to pray.